Section 48 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Almeida. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 48, Chapter 21, Part 1. Henry the Sixth. A weak prince seated on the throne of England had never failed, how gentle soever and innocent, to be infested with faction, discontent, rebellion, and evil commotions. And as the incapacity of Henry appeared every day in a fuller light, these dangerous consequences began, from past experience, to be universally and justly apprehended. Men also of unquiet spirits, no longer employed in foreign wars, whence they were now excluded by the situation of the neighboring states, were the more likely to excite intestine disorders, and by their emulation, rivalship, and animosities, to tear the bowels of their native country. But though these causes alone were sufficient to breed confusion, there concurred another circumstance of the most dangerous nature. A pretender to the crown appeared. The tie itself of the weak prince who enjoyed the name of sovereignty was disputed, and the English were now to pay the severe, though late, penalty of their turbulence under Richard the Second and of their levity in violating, without any necessity or just reason, the lineal succession of their monarchs. All the males of the house of Mortimer were extinct, but Anne, the sister of the last Earl of Marche, having espoused the Earl of Cambridge, beheaded in the reign of Henry V, had transmitted her latent but not yet forgotten claim to be on Richard, Duke of York. This prince, thus descended by his mother from philippa only daughter of the duke of clarence second son of edward the third stood plainly in the order of succession before the king who derived his descent from the duke of lancaster third son of that monarch and that claim could not in many respects have fallen into more dangerous hands than those of the duke of york richard was a man of valour and abilities of a prudent conduct and mild disposition. He had enjoyed an opportunity of displaying these virtues in his government of France, and though recalled from that command by the intrigues and superior interest of the Duke of Somerset, he had been sent to suppress a rebellion in Ireland, had succeeded much better in that enterprise than his rival in the defense of Normandy, and had even been able to attach to his person and family the whole Irish nation, whom he was sent to subdue. In the right of his father, he bore the rank of first prince of the blood, and by this station he gave a luster to his title derived from the family of Mortimer, which, though of great nobility, was equalled by other families in the kingdom, and had been eclipsed by the royal descent of the House of Lancaster. He possessed an immense fortune from the union of so many successions, 
those of cambridge and york on the one hand with those of mortimer on the other which last inheritance had before been augmented by a union of the estates of clarence and ulster with the patrimonial possessions of the family of marche the alliances too of richard by his marrying the daughter of ralph neville earl of westmoreland had widely extended his interest among the nobility and had procured him many connections in that formidable order the family of neville was perhaps at this time the most potent both from their opulent possessions and from the characters of the men that has ever appeared in england for besides the earl of westmoreland and the lords latimer falkenberg and abergavani the earls of salisbury and warwick were of that family and were of themselves on many accounts the greatest noblemen in the kingdom the earl of salisbury brother-in-law to the duke of york was the eldest son by a second marriage of the earl of westmoreland and inherited by his wife daughter and heir of montacute earl of salisbury killed before orleans the possessions and title of that great family his eldest son richard had married anne the daughter and heir of beauchamp earl of warwick who died governor of france and by this alliance he enjoyed the possessions and had acquired the title of that other family one of the most opulent most ancient and most illustrious in england the personal qualities also of these two earls especially of warwick enhanced the splendour of their nobility and increased their influence over the people this latter nobleman commonly known from the subsequent events by the appellation of the king-maker had distinguished himself by his gallantry in the field by the hospitality of his table by or magnificence and still more by the generosity of his expense and by the spirited and bold manner which attended him in all his actions the undesigning frankness and openness of his character rendered his conquest over men's affections the more certain and infallible his presents were regarded as sure testimonials of esteem and friendship and his professions as the overflowings of his genuine sentiments no less than thirty thousand persons are said to have daily lived at his board in the different manors and castles which he possessed in england the military men allured by his munificence and hospitality as well as by his bravery were zealously attached to his interests the people in general bore him an unlimited affection his numerous retainers were more devoted to his will than to the prince or to the laws and he was the greatest as well as the last of those mighty barons who formerly overawed the crown and rendered the people incapable of any regular system of civil government but the duke of york besides the family of neville had many other partisans among the great nobility courtney earl of devonshire descended from a very noble family of that name in france was attached to his interests mowbray duke of norfolk had from his hereditary hatred to the family of lancaster embraced the same party and the discontents which universally prevailed among the people rendered every combination of the great the more dangerous to the established government 
though the people were never willing to grant the supplies necessary for keeping possession of the conquered provinces in france they repined extremely at the loss of these boasted acquisitions and fancied because a sudden eruption could make conquests that without steady counsels and a uniform expense it was possible to maintain them the voluntary cession of maine to the queen's uncle had made them suspect treachery in the loss of normandy and guienne they still considered margaret as a frenchwoman and a latent enemy of the kingdom and when they saw her father and all her relations active in promoting the success of the french they could not be persuaded that she who was all-powerful in the english council would very zealously oppose them in their enterprises but the most fatal blow given to the popularity of the crown and to the interests of the house of lancaster was by the assassination of the virtuous duke of gloucester whose character had he been alive would have intimidated the partisans of york but whose memory being extremely cherished by the people served to throw an odium on all his murderers by this crime the reigning family suffered a double prejudice it was deprived of its firmest support and it was loaded with all the infamy of that imprudent and barbarous assassination as the duke of suffolk was known to have had an active hand in the crime he partook deeply of the hatred attending it and the clamours which necessarily rose against him as prime minister and declared favourite of the queen were thereby augmented to a tenfold pitch and became absolutely uncontrollable the great nobility could ill brook to see a subject exalted above them much more one who was only great-grandson to a merchant and who was of a birth so much inferior to theirs the people complained of his arbitrary measures which were in some degree a necessary consequence of the irregular power then possessed by the prince but which the least disaffection easily magnified into tyranny the great acquisitions which he daily made were the object of envy and as they were gained at the expense of the crown which was itself reduced to poverty they appeared on that account to all indifferent persons the more exceptional and invidious the revenues of the crown which had long been disproportioned to its power and dignity had been extremely dilapidated during the minority of henry both by the rapacity of the courtiers which the king's uncles could not control and by the necessary expenses of the french war which had always been very ill supplied by the grants of parliament the royal domain were dissipated and at the same time the king was loaded with a debt of three hundred and seventy two thousand pounds a sum so great that the parliament could never think of discharging it this unhappy situation forced the ministers upon many arbitrary measures the household itself could not be supported without stretching to the utmost the right of purveyance and rendering it a kind of universal robbery upon the people the public clamour rose high upon this occasion and no one had the equity to make allowance for the necessity of the king's situation suffolk once become odious bore the blame of the whole 
and every grievance in every part of the administration was universally imputed to his tyranny and injustice this nobleman sensible of the public hatred under which he laboured and foreseeing an attack from the commons endeavoured to overawe his enemies by boldly presenting himself to the charge and by insisting upon his own innocence and even upon his merits and those of his family in the public service he rose in the house of peers took notice of the clamours propagated against him and complained that after serving the crown in thirty-four campaigns after living abroad seventeen years without once returning to his native country after losing a father and three brothers in the wars with france after being himself a prisoner and purchasing his liberty by a great ransom it should yet be suspected that he had been debauched from his allegiance by that enemy whom he had ever opposed with such zeal and fortitude and that he had betrayed his prince who had rewarded his services by the highest honours and greatest offices that it was in his power to confer this speech did not answer the purpose intended the commons rather provoked at his challenge opened their charge against him and sent up to the peers an accusation of high treason divided into several articles they insisted that he had persuaded the french king to invade england with an armed force in order to depose the king and to place on the throne his own son john de la pole whom he intended to marry to margaret the only daughter of the late john duke of somerset and to whom he imagined he would by that means acquire a title to the crown that he had contributed to the release of the duke of orleans in hopes that that prince would assist king charles in expelling the english from france and recovering full possession of his kingdom that he had afterwards encouraged that monarch to make open war on normandy and guienne and had promoted his conquests by betraying the secrets of england and obstructing the succors intended to be sent to those provinces and that he had without any powers or commission promised by treaty to cede the province of maine to charles of anjou and had accordingly ceded it which proved in the issue the chief cause of the loss of normandy it is evident from a review of these articles that the commons adopted without inquiry all the popular clamours against the duke of suffolk and charged him with crimes of which none but the vulgar could seriously believe him guilty nothing can be more incredible than that a nobleman so little eminent by his birth and character could think of acquiring the crown to his family and of deposing henry by foreign force and together with him margaret his patron a princess of so much spirit and penetration suffolk appealed to many noblemen in the house who knew that he had intended to marry his son to one of the co-heirs of the earl of warwick and was disappointed in his views only by the death of that lady and he observed that margaret of somerset could bring to her husband no title to the crown because she herself was not so much as comprehended in the entail settled by act of parliament it is easy to account for the loss of normandy and guienne from the situation of affairs in the two kingdoms without supposing any treachery in the english ministers 
and it may safely be affirmed that greater vigour was requisite to defend these provinces from the arms of charles the seventh than to conquer them at first from his predecessor it could never be the interest of any english minister to betray and abandon such acquisitions much less of one who was so well established in his master's favour who enjoyed such high honours and ample possessions in his own country who had nothing to dread but the effects of popular hatred and who could never think without the most extreme reluctance of becoming a fugitive and exile in a foreign land the only article which carries any face of probability is his engagement for the delivery of maine to the queen's uncle but suffolk maintained with great appearance of truth that this measure was approved of by several at the council table and it seems hard to ascribe to it as is done by the commons the subsequent loss of normandy and expulsion of the english normandy lay open on every side to the invasion of the french maine an inland province must soon after have fallen without any attack and as the english possessed in other parts more fortresses than they could garrison or provide for it seemed no bad policy to contract their force and to render the defence practicable by reducing it within a narrower compass the commons were probably sensible that this charge of treason against suffolk would not bear a strict scrutiny and they therefore soon after sent up against him a new charge of misdemeanours which they also divided into several articles they affirmed among other imputations that he had procured exorbitant grants from the crown had embezzled the public money had conferred offices on improper persons had perverted justice by maintaining iniquitous causes and had procured pardons for notorious offenders the articles are mostly general but are not improbable and as suffolk seems to have been a bad man and a bad minister it will not be rash in us to think that he was guilty and that many of these articles could have been proved against him the court was alarmed at the prosecution of a favourite minister who lay under such a load of popular prejudices and an expedient was fallen upon to save him from present ruin the king summoned all the lords spiritual and temporal to his apartment the prisoner was produced before them and asked what he could say in his own defence he denied the charge but submitted to the king's mercy henry expressed himself not satisfied with regard to the first impeachment for treason but in consideration of the second for misdemeanours he declared that by virtue of suffolk's own submission not by any judicial authority he banished him the kingdom during five years the lords remained silent but as soon as they returned to their own house they entered a protest that this sentence should nowise infringe their privileges and that if suffolk had insisted upon his right and had not voluntarily submitted to the king's commands he was entitled to a trial by his peers in parliament it was easy to see that these irregular proceedings were meant to favour suffolk and that as he still possessed the queen's confidence 
he would on the first favourable opportunity be restored to his country and be reinstated in his former power and credit a captain of a vessel was therefore employed by his enemies to intercept him in his passage to france he was seized near dover his head struck off on the side of a long-boat and his body thrown into the sea no inquiry was made after the actors and accomplices in this atrocious deed of violence the duke of somerset succeeded to suffolk's power in the ministry and credit with the queen and as he was the person under whose government the french provinces had been lost the public who always judge by the event soon made him equally the object of their animosity and hatred the duke of york was absent in ireland during all these transactions and however it might be suspected that his partisans had excited and supported the prosecution against suffolk no immediate ground of complaint could on that account lie against him but there happened soon after an incident which roused the jealousy of the court and discovered to them the extreme danger to which they were exposed from the pretensions of that popular prince the humours of the people set afloat by the parliamentary impeachment and by the fall of so great a favourite as suffolk broke out in various commotions which were soon suppressed but there arose one in kent which was attended with more dangerous consequences a man of low condition one john cade a native of ireland who had been obliged to fly into france for crimes observed on his return to england the discontents of the people and he laid on them the foundation of projects which were at first crowned with surprising success he took the name of john mortimer intending as is supposed to pass himself for a son of that john mortimer who had been sentenced to death by parliament and executed in the beginning of this reign without any trial or evidence merely upon an indictment of high treason given in against him on the first mention of that popular name the common people of kent to the number of twenty thousand flocked to cade's standard and he excited their zeal by publishing complaints against the numerous abuses in government and demanding a redress of grievances the court not yet fully sensible of the danger sent a small force against the rioters under the command of sir humphrey stafford who was defeated and slain in an action near sevenoak and cade advancing with his followers towards london encamped on blackheath though elated by his victory he still maintained the appearance of moderation and sending to the court a plausible list of grievances he promised that when these should be redressed and when lord say the treasurer and cromer sheriff of kent should be punished for their malversations he would immediately lay down his arms the council who observed that nobody was willing to fight against men so reasonable in their pretensions carried the king for present safety to kenilworth and the city immediately opened its gates to cade who maintained during some time great order and discipline among his followers he always led them into the fields during the night-time and published severe edicts against plunder and violence of every kind 
but being obliged in order to gratify their malevolence against say and cromer to put these men to death without a legal trial he found that after the commission of this crime he was no longer master of their riotous disposition and that all his orders were neglected they broke into a rich house which they plundered and the citizens alarmed at this act of violence shut their gates against them and being seconded by a detachment of soldiers sent them by lord scales governor of the tower they repulsed the rebels with great slaughter the kentish men were so discouraged by the blow that upon receiving a general pardon from the primate then chancellor they retreated towards rochester and there dispersed the pardon was soon after annulled as extorted by violence a price was set on cade's head who was killed by one Iden, a gentleman of Sussex, and many of his followers were capitally punished for their rebellion. It was imagined by the court that the Duke of York had secretly instigated Cade to this attempt, in order to try by that experiment the dispositions of the people towards his title and family, and as the event had so far succeeded to his wish, the ruling party had greater reason than ever to apprehend the future consequences of his pretensions at the same time they heard that he intended to return from ireland and fearing that he meant to bring an armed force along with him they issued orders in the king's name for opposing him and for debarring him entrance into england but the duke refuted his enemies by coming attended with no more than his ordinary retinue the precautions of the ministers served only to show him their jealousy and malignity against him he was sensible that his title by being dangerous to the king was also become dangerous to himself he now saw the impossibility of remaining in his present situation and the necessity of proceeding forward in support of his claim his partisans, therefore, were instructed to maintain in all companies his right by succession and by the established laws and constitution of the kingdom. These questions became every day more and more the subject of conversation. The minds of men were insensibly sharpened against each other by disputes before they came to more dangerous extremities and various topics were pleaded in support of the pretensions of each party. End of section 48, chapter 21, part 1.